Okay, while everybody is uh, taking their seat and finding where they're headed, um, just review the announcements. Remember, in a little less than two weeks, we have the Chafer Conference. Starts uh, two weeks from yesterday, and we're going to need volunteers. I understand we are short of cookies. Uh, this year, I remember the first year we had like 30 dozen or something like that that everybody just went through. Or was it more than that? It's more than that. Okay, a lot more than that. So um, I think it says something about pastors and sugar and liking cookies and everybody else as well. So anyhow, uh, so we're still in need of cookies as well as other things. Also a reminder that the Saturday night before the conference, everybody gets to lose an hour of sleep uh, because it's a shift to daylight savings time. And so we're going to, um, wait, wait a minute, spring forward. So we turn clocks ahead an hour, and that's when we always discover a few people who show up at church at the wrong time on Sunday morning. All right, I think that's about it for for the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying our fellowship with him, walking by the Holy Spirit, and studying the word, reading the word, memorizing the word, applying the word as we are in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can be spiritually prepared through confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful for those who came together for prayer meeting beforehand and for the answers to prayer that we have heard and for the needs that we see. And, Father, we continue to pray for families in this congregation who are uh, in the midst of grief as their loved ones have been taken to be with you. We've had so many in the last year. Father, we continue to pray for them, that you would strengthen them, and it would be a tremendous opportunity for them to witness to others. Now, Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be strengthened in your word, and as we study your word this evening, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start off where we ended last time talking about leadership, and last time we talked about sheep and shepherds, and this time we're going to focus on the shepherd. Just a reminder, we are in Second Samuel, three basic divisions in Second Samuel. The first deals with God's blessing David and as he unites the kingdom. 
Now, this is really important because during this time, he is not going to unite the kingdom through his own machinations. He's not going to manipulate it. He's not going to fall into the trap that others want him to fall into to try to make it happen on his own. He's going to trust God, and they don't get it. And even what we've seen is that the Amalekite soldier at the beginning who thinks that he's going to curry favor with David, and he he claims that he's the one that killed Saul, thinking that, well, that's what all these kings want is somebody who's going to assassinate their competition, so he'll uh, bless me. And then David, of course, has him executed for murder. Then we just saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, these uh, two men who assassinated Ishbosheth, and then they decapitated him, which must have been a bloody mess, and then they bring that to bring his head to David, thinking once again that David's going to curry favor with them, and he's not going to do that, and again, they get executed because of their violation of the Mosaic law. And the point here is that we see, if we look at the broad picture, is through David and the Davidic covenant, God is going to be pointing out certain things about kingship that ultimately human kings fail, no matter how good they are, even if they're David and they're a man after God's own heart. Human kings, human systems, human political systems ultimately will fail. That doesn't mean we should run off to the extreme of saying I'm not going to be involved because it's just uh, um, polishing the brass on a sinking ship because we have to make critical decisions. Uh, Every week, every month, decisions are made by elected officials about everything from uh, utilities to security to national security And these are important. They not only affect us, as I pointed out last time, they affect our children. And it's part of our responsibility as believers to do everything uh, that we do to the glory of God, and that means our citizenship. It also means that we have a stewardship responsibility to pass on as as the legacy we received in terms of freedom of this nation and passing that on Uh, to the next generation. David stands as a picture, a -a one-of-a-kind picture in the ancient Near East of a righteous king. He's a man, God says a couple of times, who's a man after his own heart. And so this is seen, and eventually it will be realized by all all of the tribes and most of those in Israel that this is God's God's choice. So God is bringing this about. We've covered the first five chapters, and then when we get into uh, chapter uh, six, we'll see David how David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He understands the significance of Jerusalem. It's part of what we're going to see in chapter five. He understands the role of Jerusalem in the salvation plan of God. And that is why he is going to bring the ark to to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah. And then in chapter 7, God is going to give him a Davidic uh, a covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is going to be central to understanding uh, the rest of the book. So these first 10 chapters, he unites, he expands, he conquers the enemies of Israel, which is what the Messiah will do. The Messiah comes to where? When he returns a second time, he comes to Jerusalem. 
He's going to enter into Jerusalem and defeat his enemies in Jerusalem. This is what David does uh, as a typological picture as he captures uh, Jebus, which is the old name, the Canaanite name for Jerusalem. And so David does what the Messiah will do, and that is to expand the kingdom, to to establish the nation, and to... and to destroy the enemies of God. Second division is where David fails. God disciplines David. Just because God has chosen David doesn't mean he is able to get away scot-free with his sins, and he reaps the consequences. But because David turns back to God and, and genuinely repents, which just means to change his mind, God is going to transform the cursing into blessing. There'll still be harsh consequences and difficult consequences. And then the end of the book talks about the uh, six different episodes that demonstrate the greatness of the Davidic line, the Davidic kingdom, uh, covenant, and God's grace. So we started getting into chapter 5 last time, which is t- where God gives David control over Jerusalem. So in as we read through this section, first five verses, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over them. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we're really looking at what is transpiring in this episode where he's eventually he's going to be taking Jebus. He's been the king in Hebron, which is basically getting your uh, clan to vote you king because Hebron is the capital of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah, uh, there's still some autonomy among Benjamites, and actually the tribe of Simeon is down south also, and they'll eventually just be absorbed into what becomes known as as Judah, the tribal lands of Judah. So we focused on a couple of things last time. First of all, that the king was one of them. That's that phrase, "bone of we are your bone and your flesh, that there's a unity there. Now, I pointed out what this means, and it means a family unity, a blood relationship, that Israel is viewed as a family, not just a a collection of different peoples. And this is important because when we look at how this is used in Scripture, for example, in Deuteronomy, there is a mandate in the law that says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. See how that the desire in First Samuel 7, when the rebellious Israelites came to Samuel and say, we want a king like everybody else. This was prophesied and predicted. It was no surprise to God. He knew that is exactly what would happen. But then God says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. 
One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. Now that's the key statement. He's going to be a native ethnic Israelite. He's going to be a Jew, a descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is one of numerous examples of elements of the Mosaic Law that influenced the writers of the American Constitution. They looked to the Mosaic Law not as something they were going to just bring over in toto as the rule of law. They weren't trying to establish a theocracy. They understood that difference. But what they were doing is they were looking at the Mosaic Law as a pattern for how a righteous nation ruled. And they understood that. And there are numerous studies now. I've often quoted studies from Donald Lutz in the past, who at the time was a professor of political science at the University of Houston. And I don't know what his religious convictions were, but they did a a study of a number of quotations and statements from the uh, (coughs) founding fathers that were related to public statements they made, private letters, diaries, uh, things that they wrote, analyzing all of the various allusions to different writers to try to determine who was it that influenced the thinking of the founding fathers. And what they discovered is even among the skeptics like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and some others, that they all quoted from the Bible because they knew the culture was a culture that was grounded on the scriptures, and that was a point of authority. And the thing that's important is not just to say, well, they quoted the Bible a lot, but how did they quote the Bible? What did they use it for? And one of the things they used it for, which is demonstrable from looking at the Constitution and other things, is things like um, the basic, what we think of as basic judicial principles, that nothing will be confirmed unless it's confirmed by at least two witnesses. And so you're not going to send somebody to uh, capital punishment unless there have been at two or three witnesses. And so that was brought into uh, the American judicial system. And this is another one, that the president is to be a native-born American. He is not to be uh, a foreigner, someone who is uh, not, and of course we know of recent history, the debates that have gone over what that means to be a natural Uh, born American, but it means someone who is born on American soil, someone who, if not, then their parents would have to be serving in the military or serving in American Foreign Service, serving the country in some capacity, which is why they um, they were out of the country, or that their parents are American citizens. But that came out of Deuteronomy 1715, just another example showing that our system is Bible-based. It's not something that was dreamed up through some autonomous rationalistic scheme coming out of the Enlightenment. So we saw this emphasis that there, the king was to be uh, of the same bone and flesh, the same DNA, as the uh, same family as the rest of Israel. Another example I looked at was 2 Samuel 19.12 in the midst of the Absalom rebellion. And here it's even closer because uh, David is speaking about his clan, the other Judahites. Where were you 
I mean, they, they, he's not talking about another tribe, but his own, his own tribe, and they were the last ones to bring him back. The second thing we looked at is these statements related to leadership and ruling in, in the metaphor of a shepherd that we see in Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. And here we see uh, some important things uh, that we'll learn about, <clears throat> about leadership. And as we look at this, we're going to look at a couple of different terms that come up. We have the word for shepherd, which is the word ra'ah, which means to, the verb means to shepherd, which has the idea really of leadership, of take it, because sheep are lost. One of the great examples against evolution is the existence of sheep, because you have the whole idea that uh, in evolution that, um, that a sheep, that, that everything evolves according to the law of survival of the fittest. Well, a sheep is not very fit. A sheep has no defensive mechanism against natural enemies whatsoever. A sheep is protected by a shepherd. A sheep is fed by the shepherd. Uh, everything that takes place for the sheep's survival is done by the shepherd. The sheep are totally human-dependent and shepherd-dependent. And so without human beings, sheep would have died out long ago before they ever actually evolved. It would have just been, been self-destructive. So sheep are a great argument against evolution. And it's picked up in Scripture as a model for understanding leadership. The second word I brought up here is this word for ruler, which is the Hebrew word nagad or nagid here in this format. And it's interesting because this is a this is kind of a play on words because the Hebrew word for ruler is nagid in GD. Those are the consonants. And there's a, another word that is very similar, nakad, the, it would be the verb, in QD. And that is the word for being a shepherd. And so this was a play on words that the ruler is a shepherd. And so you also see that in the parallelism there. So that's just reinforced by the use of that particular, uh, that particular term. So we looked last time at sheep, and today I want to look at, at shepherds and what the Bible teaches about, uh, about shepherds. There's an emphasis here on leadership. And one of the first things that we see here is that this is a term that is used to describe God. It is used to describe uh, God as our leader. He is the one who uh, provides for us. He is the one who uh, takes care of us. He's the one who sustains us. And this is the word that is used in Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. Actually, there's not a verb there. It's Yahweh, my shepherd. And it's very emphatic by uh, dropping out the verb in the original. It it's, indicates that this is said in force. And then the conclusion is what's in the second line, and that is, I shall not want. I will have no needs. Now, it's very uh, common today in human 
humanistic systems of psychology to talk about understanding people's needs and their felt needs, and it goes on and on and on. And I remember a couple of seminary students, when I was in seminary, we would be taking these Christian ed courses, and as soon as they would go into these discussions on felt needs, we would look at each other and our eyes would roll. Because scripturally speaking, God, if we're walking with the Lord then our needs are satisfied. We are provided for by him. It's only when we get out of fellowship that we start getting self-absorbed and focusing on needs. And we would listen to these lectures, and it was like, well, if you want to minister to people, you have to understand their needs and talk to their needs, provide their needs. Uh, That's your point of contact. And I believe that just runs contrary to what the Word of God says. But it works. It's pragmatic. It builds huge churches because, uh, and this is what happens in all these huge, nondescript, generic evangelical churches, is that they are built on a, this psychologized principle of meeting people's needs. And the church, that's not the church's role. That's God's role. God does it. And people just uh, are there because... Uh, they're uh, getting all of this stimulation and it's all about them and so they respond to that and there's no doctrine that's being taught. Psalm 79.13 says, So we thy people and the sheep of thy pasture will give thanks to thee forever. To all generations we will tell of thy praise. Notice that underlying this is we're your people and the sheep of your pasture. God is the shepherd, we are the sheep. And of course, this gets picked up when you get into the New Testament because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the great shepherd. And he is the one who comes uh, to call his sheep to himself. In Psalm 80, verse 1, And again, a reference to God as the shepherd of Israel. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock. So great comparison there that a shepherd uh, provides, protects, leads. And I think that when you get into the New Testament and it talks about pastors and you have the gift of pastor-teacher, that combination of terms, pastor and teacher, tells how the pastor leads. It is through teaching the people about God and teaching his word. And that's how he leads people. He doesn't lead people uh, by all of these other uh, personal touches, not that that's in and of itself wrong, but if it's at the exclusion of study and teaching the word, then it is. Ran across a couple of great posts. I posted on Facebook the other day, Uh, One from Billy Graham, I've heard this before, where Billy Graham uh, made a comment about the importance of teaching. And in one of his uh, books, he commented about how when he first got out of school, he thought he knew it all. Not in a negative sense, but there's so many men who get that. They never get beyond what they're taught in seminary or Bible college because they think that that was the point, was to give them all the knowledge they would need. And it's to give you the tools that you would need to develop um, later on. And Billy Graham later said, after looking back on a life of very productive ministry, he said, I wish I had talked less and studied more. 
And that's a tremendous comment. Here's from a man who's had a worldwide impact, but he realized that many times he just didn't know what he should have known, and he should have spent more time in the study and less time talking. Also a quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was one of the great pastors in the middle of the 20th century, uh, wrote a number of books, wrote an extensive multi-volume commentary on Romans. It took him 10 years to teach through Romans because he basically taught the Bible through the book of Romans. And he, he made the comment that if he was go- only had three years to serve the Lord, he would study for two years and minister for one. And see, we have too many pastors who get distracted, and it's easy to. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come in and can can legitimately dominate your time, but if you're not studying, if you're not reading, I often think, and I heard this a lot when I was young, that the primary task of a pastor is to read. Read, 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 read. If you don't like to read, don't go into pastorate, period. You need to read a lot. When I was young, as I, I think as we get older, we don't read as much. I had a conversation with two or three of my uh, pastor friends about 10 or 12 years ago, and we commented, you know, we don't read as much as we used to because we fall asleep after about the third page. So I think that's just what happens as one gets a little older. But when I was young, probably the first 10 years I was in the pastor, I read a minimum of one book a week that didn't have anything to do with what I was teaching. And it's amazing how God uses all of that stuff that you're reading to just fill your brain with good concepts, and then it's there when you need it. And you have these things that come out and are part of your teaching, and it expands your whole wealth of, of knowledge. And one of the greatest things, I was telling a young pastor this yesterday, one of the greatest things that boosted that was when I went back to Dallas to work on my doctorate. Uh, part of doctoral studies is that you have uh, written exams. And we were given a reading list. Now, this isn't nursery rhymes. These reading li- the reading list had about 128 titles on it. Most of the titles were two, three, five, seven volume works. And you had to read all of them in about an 18-month period and then pass a written exam on them, where the written exam might be, well, compare uh, Origen, Augustine, and Aquinas on hermeneutics. And so you had to have read all all of, I did my work in historical theology, so you had to have read all of that and synthesized it, and you don't have any notes or anything. It's not open book tests. You just have to have assimilated all of that. But when you're reading, you know, think about that. I worked it up one time. It was about 228 volumes, and you have to do that in about 18 months. You're really hitting the high points. You have to learn how to read, assimilate fast. And nobody's expecting you to give in-depth doctoral dissertation type answers to those questions, but demonstrate that you've understood the gist of what's going on in those books. But pastors have to read. And every week I'm just, I just want to throw up my hands because there's so much going on and so much I need to read. There's so many books and so little time. And that's the challenge of the pastoral ministry is you have to read because you have to know what is going on. And I can't tell you how many times I thought I've thought I've used all my time and worked through something 
And then somebody says, well, did you look at this? And I go read something else and have to, you know, reshape and rethink things because there's just such good material out there. And a lot of times what I find from seminary graduates is they don't even know what to read anymore. And when I went through Dallas, I was so thankful that that was emphasized. Every professor gave you a bibliography for whatever he was teaching, and he would recommend five or ten books that you should have in your library so that when you went out to uh, wherever, you would have those things. Now, I got, I got, I didn't get vaccinated because that would prevent you from getting something. So I guess I got infected with the virus of, of buying books about a year, two years before I went to seminary, knowing that that was my plan. Randy Price was a couple of years ahead of me. He started right out of college, and I went to visit him. And one of the things he did, he said, well, Robbie, you're going to come to Dallas, so let's go down and buy your first-year textbooks now, and you can start reading them. So we went to the bookstore, and I walked around like this as Randy piled book after book into, into my arms and walked out of there with a couple of stacks of books that would be first-year texts, and I was able to read through all of them before I went to seminary. But that started uh, this whole process of, of buying, buying books. And one of the things I'll never forget that Randy, um, Randy told me, he said, one day, you have to build a library, Robbie. One day you may be in Podunk Junction, and you're going to have to find a good library. And it may be 200 miles to a good theological library, so you're going to have to have your own library. Little did I know that one year I would live where the Podunk Indians lived. And when I was up at Preston City, one time we went down to a restaurant at the local casino, and they had these maps showing the outline of the state of Connecticut on the place map. And on that place map, it identified all the different Indian tribes that lived in those areas. And right there where Preston City was located were the Podunk Indians. So Randy Price was a, was a prophet and didn't know it because I was stuck there and it was who knows how far, 7,500 miles to the nearest decent theological library. You, a pastor needs to have that kind of resource. Fortunately, with things like Logos and some of those electronic things and the Internet, uh, you can find a lot of material today, but you have to know who to read and where to find it, and that's part of what should take place in any in any seminary education. You have to study, and that's the purpose for the pastoral ministry, is to feed the sheep, to teach them. That's what Jesus emphasized with Peter, is if you love me, you will feed the sheep, you will shepherd the lambs, you will nourish them, and that comes from the uh, from the Word of God. Psalm 95, 7, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, again, emphasizing he is our, our shepherd. Ezekiel thirty four fifteen. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest. Only in God does our soul find rest, and it comes as a result first of feeding. Notice the order here. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest. The feeding comes from the Word of God. When we are nourished on the Word of God, it is through that nourishment that we discover that God is our source of rest.
The second thing we see is that the term shepherd was used of the king of the nation and to describe their role. David is the ultimate example of the shepherd king in the Old Testament. And we see this in um, numerous passages. For example, in Psalm 78, uh, 70, we, we learn of this. Let's, uh, I'll just flip over there. We're going to bounce around to a couple of passages I want to emphasize for you. Psalm 78, verse 70. This is a psalm that is related to God's faithfulness to Israel even when they were uh, rebellious. And so if we skip down, it's a long psalm. If you skip down to verse to the last three verses, what we read here is God say, uh, the writer saying, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. We're going to see this again as we go through our study of 2 Samuel 5, is God chose Jerusalem, God chose Zion, God chose the mount, uh, the, the temple mount. This, none of this has happened by happenstance. It's not chance. God chose David. God had a plan for David. God is working it out. God had a plan for Jerusalem, even though when David becomes king, it's a Canaanite city. It's a pagan city. He's going to have to capture it. God has a plan for the Temple Mount that is right there, and we'll see that emphasis. God, uh, God chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, that had young, he, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And that word inheritance to us commun communicates somebody dying, and you receive an inheritance. You get something left to you in a will. But the core idea of that word in Hebrew, as well as in Greek, is possession. He is to shepherd Jacob, God's people, and Israel, God's possession. So it emphasizes that the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are God's possession. And then the conclusion is, so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. That is what should be the mark of a leader, is an, an integrity of heart that is in his thinking, not his emotions, but in his thinking, in his innermost being, is someone who has integrity. They are honest, they're faithful, uh, they're not self-absorbed, they're loving, they're concerned first and foremost about their people. That integrity of heart has to do with the mental attitude and the mental focus, as we've studied in uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, that resolve that Jesus had, we're to have that mental attitude. And then that integrity of heart, heart first and then hands. It's not, you know, people today want to come to church and they want, give me five points of application. I want to know what I can go home and put into practice today. And I have had to bite my tongue so many times when I've heard somebody make statements that, well, you know, I can't just I'm a practical person. If I can't take something and just go home and, and put it into practice, then, then that's not very worthwhile. 
And I just have to bite my tongue because he's just vocalizing such ignorance. Nothing in life works that way. No learning in life works that way. If you're in accounting, you know, you have to learn math. You start off with arithmetic and then more advanced ages of math, and it doesn't seem to have a real practical application for many years. If you're in many other areas of, of intellectual activity, you don't see an immediate application. We have to learn many, many, many things before we get to the point where we have enough knowledge to where we can apply it in a skillful way. And see, this that's what this is talking about. Integrity of heart has to do with his mental attitude. He's a man after God's own heart. He's focused on on the Lord. And this then guides his skillful hands in what he does, in the pro- product, uh, the production of his life. Then we come to the third point is that this is a term that emphasizes leadership. It emphasizes leadership. It's a positive metaphor that's used over and again in Scripture. I pointed out last time that that I had been in, in Kiev for Christmas this last January, uh, Orthodox Christmas, and that uh, I was teaching on, on Luke 2 and Jesus' uh, birth in, in Bethlehem and the appearance of the angels to the shepherds and read in several commentaries. And I, this this is true in some places at some times. The shepherds were viewed as the lowest level on the socioeconomic scale and people didn't want to have anything to do with them. And that this is why Jesus appears to them. He is concerned about the poor the impoverished, the those who are marginalized and outside of the um, uh, outside of society, and that's wrong. That's a Marxist interpretation of the nativity because number one, the shepherds that were taking care of that flock were Levitical priests because that flock outside of Bethlehem was the flock from which the daily sacrifices. Uh, were taken, so all of this had to be according to uh, mosaic law and all under the uh, uh, leadership and responsibility of the Levitical priests who were very well educated and respected because they were Levitical priests, and so they weren 't from the lowest levels of the socio economic scale and then also because in the Bible you never have an example uh, given of a shepherd that is a negative thing. I mean, there may be bad shepherds, but it's not because they're, they are impoverished and they're the lowest of the, of the low and the poor people and things like that. God uh, uses this to be a picture of who he is and his leadership, who, the leadership of the king, the leadership of the church, and this is seen again and again and again. So we have... Uh, passages such as Isaiah forty eleven, He will feed his flock. God will feed his flock. He's the subject of the verb. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. God is the one who nourishes us. He's the one who leads us to green pastures, that whole imagery there of providing the nourishment and its spiritual nourishment. And then he cares for those uh, lambs. He will gather the lambs with his arm. Jesus is picking up on that metaphor when he is talking to Peter and he says, will you love my little lambs? That's one of the questions. And he said, feed my little lambs. 
And so there's there's the emphasis within that whole structure of what Jesus is saying to Peter that emphasizes taking care of the young, taking care of the old, taking care of the middle age, but not in physical age, but in terms of their spiritual age. In other words, provide food and nourishment for all of the all of the ages. And so this is the idea. You have the same word for shepherd. That's the upper word here, ra'ah. It's a participle. A participle uh, is a verb that's used as a noun. So the word shepherd as a noun uh, means is what's translated here. And then the verb is what's used in the at the beginning. He will feed his flock like a, a shepherd. And so you get this uh, developed in the rest of that uh, particular verse. It's um, <clears throat> has the idea and gently lead those who are with the young. It means to lead with care, and so it shows a concern, a personal involvement, and a devotion to carrying out the task of feeding the sheep. And you can relate that to a pastor that that must be his passion to study study the word and to be able to properly communicate it and feed his congregation. Jeremiah 3.15, God says to Israel, I will give you shepherds according to my heart. The idea in the Greek is very, I mean in the Hebrew is very similar to the Greek, according to that is according to a certain standard, and it is God's heart, that is God's thinking. And so these shepherds that are promised are those who will be uh, those who will lead them in the truth of God's word, and they feed with knowledge and understanding. They don't feed with a uh, hearty handshake and an arm around the shoulder. They don't feed with uh, many of the other ways in which you see uh, pastors uh, portrayed. It is through the teaching of of the word of God. But shepherds are also used as a negative illustration. There are going to be false teachers and apostate kings, just as there are those who are after God's own heart. There are going to be those who are uh, false shepherds. They are serving themselves. They are serving the false gods. You can think of Ahab and Jezebel in the north. And so they are leading the people astray. Passages like Isaiah fifty six eleven describes that them as greedy dogs which never have enough. They're they're never satisfied. And they are shepherds. I had a dog once that I I've had several dogs and you put food out and most of the dogs I've had would eat and when they were satisfied, that was it. But I had one dog that you could, if I left a whole bag out there, that dog would eat until it was sick. That's a greedy dog. There, it's just all about him. He, he. I swear, he had a sin nature. They're greedy dogs, which never have enough, and they are shepherds. These greedy dogs are identified as shepherds who cannot understand. That means there's a spiritual deficit, and because of that spiritual deficit, they can't properly interpret what's going on in the world around them. We can point to probably a lot of people in government service today who are totally blind. They've been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness for so long that they have 
uh, been deceived. They've been given over to deception. And they can't see the truth if you were to throw it in their face like an ice bucket. They wouldn't, still wouldn't see it because they have distorted their thinking so much they've lost all objectivity. They cannot understand. They are beyond that because they have such a depravity in their soul. They all look to their own way, self-absorption. They're about power. They're about uh, using their position of influence to satisfy every kind of lust you can imagine. We've had a lot of examples of that in the news recently. They are guilty of using their office uh, in terms of sexual abuse of those that are under them. We even had a president who uh, famously was involved in that. Um, they, they're just self-absorbed. They're using their power to satisfy their own lusts, everyone for his own gain and from his own uh, territory. So this is a focal point. They are not good shepherds. They are shepherds who have gone, sheep who have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Jeremiah 10.21 uh, is another passage. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted, that's talking about their minds. They can't think clearly. And just I just watch some of these things that are going on today, some things that professors in, in schools are saying, some things that uh, politicians are saying from either side of the aisle, and you wonder if they can even think anymore. They, they have just destroyed their capacity for objectivity and to understand truth. They are dull-hearted. doesn't matter how IQ, high their IQ is. That's what Paul refers to in Romans 1.19, professing to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they have rejected the thinking of God. And as a result of that, there is a collapse in their ability to think rightly. They've become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. That's why they have become dull-hearted. Therefore, they shall not prosper that is, these leaders will not prosper, and all their flocks will be scattered. Eventually, this is what happened in Israel. This is Jeremiah who's speaking here, not long before the Babylonian invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple, and then took so many prisoners, that they, and they were taken from Israel, and they were scattered amongst all of his, all of his empire. Uh, that's what it is prophesying here. All their flocks shall be scattered. And the Jews were scattered for 70 years in the Babylonian captivity. Another passage in Jeremiah 23, 1. Actually, you might want to turn there as we read through this. Some of these are great uh, chapters and indictments of of leadership. And I think today... In our culture where we have such an absence of integrity and such an absence of biblical truth, that these are passages that are extremely uh, relevant to our culture. Woe to the shepherds who were destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Now, in the original context, this is referring to the religious and political leaders of Israel that have led of Judah, actually the northern kingdom is gone, who have led the people into idolatry, especially under the horrible time of Manasseh, who was the, one of the most evil kings uh, in Judah. 
and they're destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. See, when, when, with Israel, the leaders are merely under, the, the kings are under kings. They are under the sovereignty of the Lord, shepherding his sheep, and they thought they were uh, their own sheep. Verse 2, we read, Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, You have scattered my flock and driven them away. How? Through false teaching, through uh, taking them into idolatry, for ignoring the law. We think of the time of Josiah who dies just a few years before Nebuchadnezzar, but when he was young, they discovered that the law had been hidden away and it was rediscovered because the people had taken, the kings had taken the Bible completely out of the culture. And it was only uh, when he was a child that it's rediscovered in the temple. So they are to blame for teaching the people lies. You scattered my flock and driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. That's the announcement that God is about to destroy Israel and scatter them. So this uh, continues. Then in verse uh, 3, it goes on. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries. So this is talking about eventually there's hope. Whenever God brings judgment or announces it, he always announces hope. In verses 3 and 4 of Jeremiah 23, Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock. Notice the shepherd imagery there. Out of all the countries where I have driven them, and shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. There is a time in Israel's future when God will restore them and fulfill all of his covenants. He will fulfill the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. He will put in them a new heart, and no one will need to teach their neighbor to know God because they will all know him. That is that is the new covenant. And in that time, they will be fruitful and multiply. And also in verse 4, we read, And I shall also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing. There will be true peace, internal peace, not just external lack of war or violence. And so this is uh, important to understand that the sh- ultimately the shepherd that is alluded to here is Jesus, who is a great shepherd. This is described in the uh, John chapter 10. And only when we are rightly related to Jesus is there going to be true peace, and only when he as the Prince of Peace comes are they going to be able uh, to have this kind of stability. And that's what verse 5 and 6 talk about in Jeremiah 23, because God immediately relates this time period to the fulfillment of the Davidic shepherd, the Davidic kingdom. Behold, the days are coming when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. This is a picture that is also used of the house of David. It talks about uh, you know, David's father was Jesse. Talks about in Isaiah the stump of Jesse. It's a tree that's been cut off. There's no life, but a shoot's going to come out. There's going to be new life that comes out from what appears to be 
a dead stump, like the Davidic line, the line of Jesse is stopped. But this new shoot is going to come up. That's what this is alluding to. He will raise up for David a righteous branch. That is a reference to the Messiah. And this branch that comes out of the uh, root of, of Jesse, uh, the stump of Jesse and the root of David is going to reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. That is what the northern kingdom is beginning to see in David by the time we get to Second Samuel chapter 5 is that he hasn't gone along with any of these uh, political machinations, these assassinations or other things. He is demonstrating that he is righteous and he's going to take the kingdom and be the king for everyone on the basis of, of righteousness. And so, and David, of course, is a picture ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jeremiah 23, 6 ends by saying, in his days... Judah will be saved. That's talking about the future millennial kingdom. And Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so this is what David ultimately predicts, but what he's showing with David, even the best of human kings, is not good enough. We'll never find real stability through human kings, human systems of government, or in human politics. That doesn't mean you run away from it, because we still have to make practical decisions about who's going to provide electricity. For some people, it's more important to decide who's going to be your cable provider or your internet provider, all these utilities. How are we going to take care of transportation? How are we going to provide for the infrastructure? All of those things are important. They affect every American. That's why it's important, as I pointed out last time, to vote. Now, one last passage I want to look at in terms of understanding this shepherd uh, imagery that we've been studying is in the next book of Ezekiel. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived at the same time. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both addressing that exile generation, that generation that is uh, defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, that generation that is taken out of Israel and goes in the in the diaspora, uh, those who have failed, that's who they're addressing. Jeremiah is a prophet in the land. Ezekiel is a prophet out of the land. Ezekiel has already been taken with that first group of captives, either in 605 with Daniel or in 597 with the second deportation, uh, one of those two. And he is uh, in Babylon, and from that vantage point, he is addressing the uh, the remnant, and he's addressing addressing those who are in uh, Babylon. So look at Ezekiel chapter 30, 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, and we read, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So we still have the same group of bad guys, the bad leaders, the corrupt politicians, the idolatrous uh, priests and religious leaders. And God says, prophesy and say to them. Now, part of the role of a prophet was to bring a lawsuit. He's like the, um, like the attorney general for the kingdom of God. And he is representing the, the Torah, the law of God, and bringing an indictment against the nation. And that's what this, this is. This is an indictment. 
prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. We see the same theme, just self-absorption. They're in it for their own power, their own benefit, their own pleasure, their own money. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? That's the role of the shepherd. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You know, the temptation to go on a rant about all of these uh, televangelists who have solid gold commodes in their bathrooms and who drive um, four or $500,000 cars. And I know some like this. I have met uh, pastors. I know of one pastor uh, who has a Bentley and a Rolls Royce. And that's just some of the cars that he owns. I personally don't know too many pastors who can even come close. Can't, they can't pay the, the insurance on a Bentley and a Rolls Royce, much less having them. And, but that's what is happening. You have pastors, they're, they're more concerned about their own prosperity, and they preach prosperity, the prosperity gospel. So God says, you eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool, slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty, you have ruled them. This is the role of a spiritual leader, not just the physical issue here, but the spiritual issue. People are weak spiritually. They are sick spiritually. They are broken spiritually. They have been um, uh, rejected in many cases. They are driven away. And this is the role of the pastor, but he does it through the teaching of the word. That's the same thing in the Old Testament with the Levitical priests. And so because of their failure to teach the people, the result is that the people, the sheep, will be scattered, verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. God goes on to say in verse 6, My flock wandered, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. This is talking about the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. And then he comes to a conclusion in verse 6. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And here we see the grace of God, his longing for his people and what he will do eventually. He says, as I live, Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will re require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. So he goes on to say how God is going to uh, bring judgment upon these false teachers, and then false shepherds. And then starting in verse 11, it goes even further. And there he describes what he as the true shepherd will do. And all of this is fulfilled as a type and is fulfilled with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search out for my sheep 
and seek them. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And when does that happen? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He is the good shepherd, and he will seek out the scattered sheep of Israel, and that is when they are ultimately restored as a uh, as a redeemed people back to the land. Today we're seeing the first restoration, which is not a redeemed people. According to Isaiah 11, 11, there are two great worldwide restorations. This is the first one. Never before in history have we seen almost... 50% of the Jews in the world living in Israel. It's a little over 48%. And never before in the time of Jesus, it didn't even come close to that. This is a unique period of time, but it's a regathering in unbelief. But there's going to be this regathering in belief at the end of the tribulation when God will establish his kingdom. But what we see that runs through all of this is a shepherd, someone who is shepherding and ruling, does so on the basis of God's word, and he does so according to the standards of God's word, and ultimately the shepherd must be concerned about the spiritual health, which comes from the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of scripture. So next time we're going to come back and get into the next part of chapter 5, talking about how God is going to give Jerusalem to David and how and the significance of Jerusalem in God's plan. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose and that your plan and purpose in the Old Testament was worked out. From eternity past, you knew that you would bring Abraham to this that land. You knew that you had a plan for that Mount Moriah. You knew that you had a plan for that city of the Jebusites at the base of Mount Moriah. You knew that this would be the city of David and the city of the future king. That all of this is according to your plan and your purpose. Father, the same is true in our lives. There may be many times when we feel like there is chaos. There may be many times when it looks like the world around us is falling apart, and yet you have a plan and purpose that will eventually be worked out just as it will be for Israel. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to share and participate in that plan and to be a blessing to others through giving them the gospel, and we pray that you would encourage us and give us those opportunities and have the strength and uh, courage, dependency upon you to give the gospel, making it clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.